Cult Collectibles is the number one site for historical items from the People's Temple, Heaven's Gate, Om Shinrikyo, and many other cults that you never even knew existed. Hundreds of hours of work have gone into curating our collection of unique and one-of-a-kind items from the dark history of these groups. We also have a large selection of true crime memorabilia from such notorious cases as Edmund Kemper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, and many more. We add new items to the site every week and post sales and auctions on our Instagram at Cult Collectibles. So visit us on the web at cultcollectibles.org today. Welcome to the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and today we are diving into part two of our exploration into the murderabilia collecting and inmate pen pal culture. With me over Skype is Michael, the subject of Renee Wisner's newest documentary, Michael, a Murderabilia Memoriam, and the owner and founder of the Museum of Madness. How are you doing today, man? Hey, man, I'm fine. Thank you very much for um, introducing me to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm glad that uh, we were able to find a time for us to talk. I know we're on different parts of the world, but I'm glad we can make it happen. Awesome. <laughs> so my first question is, uh, where did your interest in true crime first begin? Was there a specific case you heard about that really stuck out to you? Um, how did it all start? Um, so since I was younger, like 11 years old, there was always that interest in like dark stuff and, uh, yeah, the occult things. And the first thing that really was like, I was into was like, um, uh, September 11, 9, 11 and uh, Columbine. And the, the main thing when I stepped in all to the serial killer stuff was like, I was watching Halloween with resurrection with Jamie Lee Curtis. And at the beginning, there is this scene with this weirdo in this mental state institution uh, with Michael Myers, and he's talking about, like, Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy. And I was, like, 11 or 12 years old, and I was, like, thinking, are these just imaginary names, or are these names are really uh, out of the real world? And so I was, like, sitting with my laptop in front of this movie, and I was, like, typing the names into Google like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy and I saw wow these are real people these are not just a part of the movie and so yeah I was like into the subject <laughs> yeah that's kind of similar to me I was with my aunt and we saw I think we saw House of a Thousand Corpses and uh, she told me it reminded her of Jeffrey Dahmer and that's the first time I ever heard of Jeffrey Dahmer and I was probably 13 and that, so I went home and I looked up Jeffrey Dahmer and I was like oh my god there's real people like this out there you know it's pretty, it's a right. crazy. Um, so how did this interest grow into you wanting to collect and actually found out that you can actually even purchase artifacts from all these true crime cases? Um, it, it took a while for a long time. It was just like books and movies and, and, and uh, documentaries. And I don't know, I, I just found the page 
uh, where you could could buy all that stuff or I read about it. I don't know it anymore. It was like 2013, I think. Um, yeah, it was like it was like wow. So how crazy would it be to 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 own something like that? And I I till this day I don't know why it was so interesting to me, but that that was the point. And just like it was like. Um, yeah, that books or movies or documentaries, it was good, but it it it, it, it was it wasn't wasn't enough, and so I was like, wow, how how was it? Is it to write these inmates or collect like a signature from Ted Bundy? That was so the next level, and that was something like yeah, I was really interest interested in, but I can't can't explain why. <laughs> in the documentary. Uh, you describe your collection as existing in kind of like three parts and you have this really expansive correct collection that has so many different things and so you've kind of you kind of described that you have your oddities collection of like human skulls and medical tools and then you've got your other section which is more murderabilia artifacts and then the last is the different letters that you've collected from writing to different inmates and I was wondering which one of those things came first? How did how did this start and grow into what it is now? Um, I think it, it came really, uh, yeah, in the same in the same uh, time. Um, the the funny thing is, um, the first person who wrote me was Charles Manson. <laughs> so, in August two thousand and thirteen, and I was like, okay, if Charles Manson is writing me back. Even he got like 300 letters a day, so uh, I can make it like with other names. And so I had a list with all these inmates and I was like, okay, yeah, like I'm buying, or, or, or I, I wrote like many, many names. And, and in the same time frame, they are, I bought my first uh, piece. Yes. What was the first uh, first piece that you ever bought? My first piece I ever bought was an original courtroom sketch from the case of Ted Bundy. Oh, wow. That's, that's and amazing. Tr an interesting fact is eight, I think eight drawings were made from her, the, the same woman. Four sketches from him in the courtroom and the last sketches were him sitting on the electric chair. And the other... All the other paintings except mine are now in the uh, Museum of Death in New Orleans. Oh wow! Yeah, they they bought all 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 of them. <laughs> Have they reached out to you trying to get yours? No, but I was in New Orleans and showed them the picture of my collection. <laughs> what they say? Uh, they thought it was funny. Like, <laughs> they, they always were like wondering who was the guy who snatched the the, the last part. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good uh, good segue into something that you talk about in the documentary, which is that you've actually traveled to different parts of the world to kind of go check out some of the iconic locations where a lot of these crimes have happened. And I was wondering, when did you start doing that, or, and what are some of the locations you've been to? Um, I think the first big yeah, yeah, part was in 2016. Um, I traveled with a friend to New York and I visited Amityville. Um, right. And I like, I, I visit many movie, horror movie locations, but also like uh, locations like the Cecil Hotel. Even I wasn't in the hotel, but I was at the hotel. 
and yeah, I just like now at, at the COVID time, it's 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 it's, it's hard. But usually I, I fly to America once a year and then I see like what what uh, locations are nearby. Yeah, in the documentary you show that you went to the Museum of Death in Hollywood and there's a lot of uh, true crime stuff that's happened all over L.A. And so right. there's definitely a lot of stuff to check out. Um, I don't live too far from there. I drove up to uh, the Hollywood area and checked out... Um, where Elizabeth Short's body was found, the Black Dahlia yes. site. And it's a really kind of unreal feeling to be there, and it, it really makes it feel so much more real. I'm sure being in front of the Amityville house felt that way too. Yeah, sure. I was, like, very... Um, uh, I was very, like... It was smaller, the house. You always know it from these covers, from the horror movies and the books. And then when you are in front of that house, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so with how big your collections got now, what are some of the most, uh, I don't know, valued items that you have? They could be valuable in terms of that it's expensive, but it could also be valuable like you cherish it. It's important to you. Yeah. So um, very important is the collection for me from, of Eileen Werner's um, pieces. Mm -hmm. Like I own her pajama, a sweater, many, many letters. Um, I uh, own uh, her um, an, a court a document where she's begging to be executed. And it's from June 2001. Wow. Um, also, a very, very important piece to me is the original signature of Andrew Borden, the father of Lizzie Borden. <laughs> that wow. was the most expensive signature I, I bought. And um, yeah, the, the, the Dharma envelope and the full signature from uh, Ted Bundy. These are so the holy grail pieces. How much was that board in, or not how much, but how did you end up getting your hands on that? That that seems like a extremely rare piece. Right, right. It was a private collector. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I uh, yeah, like uh, saw this piece. I, I, I knew it a longer time that this piece was there, but it was like expensive. But then at one time I was like, okay, now I made it. So I, I will I will buy it. Um, we, you talked about writing to, to different inmates and in the documentary, you said that you're in, you're talking to like 50 different people. And I think for someone who's, uh, new to learning about writing to inmates, um, how often do you get successes and fails? Like how many people, like you're talking to 50 people, how many people have you written to, do you think without getting success? Um, I, I can't. I can't tell you an exact number, but what I can tell you is that um, at the beginning there was more failure, but uh, with the time you know how to write these letters and you know how it works, and with the time you got success. So that that was so was it my situation. So so with the time I was very um, safe in writing to inmates, and I got more success with the time. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I talked about uh, in my last episode was uh, writing Writing to inmates requires a, le a level of skill because 
they get writ they get letters from people all the time they probably get hundreds or thousands of letters all the time and your letter has to what you write to them has to stand out enough to make them want to write back to you and do you have any uh tips or any any tricks on how to how to write to someone and and the idea that they might write back to you so i'm i am always really open-minded mm-hmm. so i don't like uh I don't want to be a phony, so I just write who I am. I, I, I ask questions so they see there's some interest in it, in, in their personality. Uh, of course, I don't speak about their crimes. I just treat them like a just normal pen pal. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I will tell them uh, something about me that so they have a, yeah, a face in mind. So I put a photo inside of me. And so I'm really like me. I'm Michael, so I don't fake it. Um, and I, I think they have a um, sense of taste for it. Who who really like, yeah, just wants to be phony and, and, and is, is fake and just to get a response and who is really interested in their personality and not in their crimes. Do you share with them that you are interested in in murderabilia, or is that something that you don't really tell them? I don't really tell them, but with the time. Yeah. So if I write write them longer, longer, I I tell them, of course, so that I'm interested in true crime, but I'm not like in the first letter, hey, can you send me your prison ID? (laughs) (laughs) Um. One thing that you talked about is that you almost exclusively write to American inmates, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on why why you cho- choose to write to American inmates over um, inmates from other parts of the world. Uh, it's the most interesting cases are like in America, mm-hmm. um, but if it's interesting, I also wrote or I wrote one person in England, and mm-hmm. it was Ian Brady. Um, who responded to me. So I am Brady is a name. Um, yeah, it's just like, it's the, these are the most interesting cases. And of course, it's like, okay, most people I write to uh, got a life sentence on death row, so they will never get out. And this is some like safety part for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the laws and how they respond to this kind of stuff is different in other countries. I mean, you might not get a life sentence in other countries. So, or a death right. sentence in other countries. So it's it's like if you're interested in that, I can tell you in Germany it's really really crazy, really crazy. Yeah. If, if you if you are drunk and you kill someone, you get like seven or eight years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they they are like, oh, he was drunk, he didn't knew what he was doing, and oh, he was like, oh, only twenty two, that's near to eighteen years old. So yeah, we will give them seven to eight years. Um, you, so I know that people are pretty private with the inmates that they talk to, but you in the, in the documentary mentioned some of the inmates that you, you have written to before. And a lot of them are some pretty, uh, significant names. And I was wondering if you could share on here, here, some of the people that have written back to you that, uh, that stand out to you personally. Do you mean the biggest names who wrote me back or with, with, with them? I have the longest, uh, conversations. Uh, just about like if, if the person is significant to you, like if they're a big name or you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have a letter from this person. It doesn't really mean that you have to talk, you're talking with them repeatedly, but, um, just 
if there if it's if it's a significant response to you sure so the the first letter i got like like i said what with uh, from charles manson that's so like pretty heavy <laughs> so sure this this postcard is still like now he's dead it's even more exciting that that there's a postcard with my name on it written from charles manson you know like Everybody knows Charles Manson, even people who are not in the true crime scene. I think you can say Charles Manson is the boogeyman of the 21st century, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, so these are people where I think, okay, that's pretty crazy, like Dennis Rader, PTK, or uh, yes, Son of Sam wrote me, and of course these are the biggest names, and sure, I was like very excited about it. One person that I'm really interested in in is uh james holmes and i saw in the documentary that you have you have uh an envelope from james holmes was that something that you got on got yourself or did you buy that i buy that oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah i heard he's I, really I, difficult I, to I, I talk to yeah, the letter is in the envelope so i have both parts but i only displayed the envelope yeah yeah i heard that he's pretty hard to get in contact with um that he right. doesn't write back a lot write back a lot um, right Another thing that you collect is is human bones. You actually have a lot of human skulls, and I was wondering. I mean, I I think that the murderabilia collecting community and then the oddities collecting community overlap with each other, but they are both kind of separate. You know, sometimes people can be interested in one and or the other, um, and then there's people like you and I who are interested in both. But for people who may not be familiar with human bone collecting, what can you tell us about how you got those, where you buy those from, where you get them from, the origin of the skulls, all, all of that? Mm -hmm. uh, at first, I, I, I need to, to, to tell you that I am not really into the human anatomy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't really know anything about that. I just like the view, though. So I like it to have a like gothic-like uh um um i don't know the english word a vitrine i don't know that sorry uh, uh no problem <laughs> like uh, i don't have the, the the english word um so i i just like the, the um gothic like look when you have skulls in a nice victorian uh, vintage look you know mm -hmm. uh, so i'm not really in that anatomy like was it a, a boy was it a girl uh, like how how the person died, so I don't know anything about where these skulls are like come from. Um, these are groups who 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 sell it, uh, and it, it's of course pretty uh, uh, legal. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I know often that these are from like um, uh, universities who let them go. And I, I, I don't really know anything about it, uh, so I just bought them, and I don't really know the history, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah. Well, I was, what I was going to say was, so you've, you've gotten this gigantic uh, personal collection that you have, and then you ultimately uh, showcased it by starting your Museum of Madness, and I was wondering... Um, what was the process of that like? When did you decide like I have this collection? I want to I want to showcase this in a museum. Um, that was pretty fast, I think. I think the Museum of Madness started on Halloween two thousand and fifteen, 
um, and I, I always like to display just to, to display these pieces like a museum. So I I wouldn't like take the one sweater of ID Warners and put it in my closet. So I want to display it like the death row Bibles and all that stuff. I really like to display the stuff to frame it and to just look at like a museum and. And I think it was just like a fun idea for me to call it like the Museum of Madness. I had fun to give all that stuff a name and make a logo. And but I, I like I said in the documentary, it's not an open museum. It's just private. So it was just like an, a media thing, just for the internet. Yeah, I saw I saw pictures uh, where it looked like you were showcasing it at a convention or or something like that. Um... Did that happen? Right. Yeah, that was 2015, my first convention at the horror convention uh, in Germany. But the people uh, well, weren't like very uh, amused about it because they were like, yeah, that's a fictional convention about fictional killers like Michael Myers and Jason. And now this guy comes and brought, brought this real life stuff here into this, in this convention. And they, they were not amused about it, except a few people. But... I was like, hey, man, without Ed Gein, there would be no Psycho, there would be no Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and there would be no Silence of the Lambs. So you know what I mean? It's a piece, it's a part of all that stuff. Yeah, there's there's a part that you talk about that I think has a lot of significance, because I think that people really do uh, get turned off by people like this and don't really understand why people are interested in, in true crime. But I do think that these these characters, they're not characters, they're real people, but they become, with with enough time passing, they do become characters. They become like our boogeymen, you know? Um, when you think about, what's his name? The serial killer from from England who would kill prostitutes. They have a museum for him. Uh, from, uh, Jack the Ripper. Yeah, Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper has kind of become not even a person anymore. He's become kind of like a, a character, like a, a scary right. boogeyman. You know, to the point where they have museums about him and he's just kind of this, even though he was a real person, he it's it's like he lost it. He's lost the, the truth behind it. And it's just become uh, this archetype, basically. And I think the same thing happened with Ed Gein, with Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I mean, you could go on and on about the different films that have been inspired or different fictional narratives that have been created around Ed Gein. And even though Ed Gein was real, I mean, there's people out there who who love Leatherface and don't even know who Ed Gein is, you know? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I think Jack the Ripper is the best, um, the best example for that stuff. Like, I was in Whitechapel and visited the museum. Mm-hmm. And it's like they are every everywhere you see tourists like Jack the Ripper tours and all that stuff. And I think people can like cope with it if enough time is passing. Yeah. So if it, it like Jack the Ripper was a eight eighty eight the eighteen hundred, so and on the nineteen hundred, so it's over hundred years ago. So and I think people can say, okay, it's our over 100 years, all the generations are died who were, like, into it, so it's okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Imagine you would make a tour at the Aurora uh, Cinema about James Holmes. It yeah. was like, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I've seen that in my lifetime. I've seen that with, you talked about Columbine. I was, that was 1999. I was uh, probably nine years old when that happened. And I remember uh, how people were reacting when that happened. But now enough times pass that Columbine is become kind of like a, a more of a story, you know? And you think about, uh, you talk, you talk about James Holmes, I think enough time passes and it's just going to be the scary story about the, the lunatic in the movie theater. Um, and people kind of, it gets disconnected. I see, I've seen that with nine 11 with nine 11 people kind of now like nine 11 just happened. And I saw tons of memes and jokes and stuff about nine 11 and, when that happens, like there was for years and years and years, you couldn't joke about it. And even still, still now you can't joke about it. But I think what happens is enough time passes where there's a new generation of people who weren't there when it happened, who didn't get to experience the the shock of the community and actually got to hear the real victims and all that stuff that it just becomes like just like Jack the Ripper, like because we weren't there, we weren't part of the community when it happened. We're so, uh, there's so much time allows for a separation to occur and you can just, it just becomes another story. So. Right, right. Just, yeah, like it, 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 it uh, becomes a like urban legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that, I think I personally, and I don't know this, someone would probably challenge me on this for sure, but. I think a lot of our legends of uh, werewolves and and vampires and all that stuff probably came from real people who did terrible things and they turned in they they mythologized a person and and turned it into something fictional. But uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, like. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you. Just like uh, Elizabeth Bathory, it's like the the female Dracula, like his bathing and in in, in 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 blood and all that stuff. And uh, I, I really, yeah, just like I am, uh, I know what you're meaning. These people are a, a becoming a person in, in all the pop culture. So look, look at the metal bands, the Black Dahlia Murder. Whitechapel, all these names are made of like serial killer stuff or, or true crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you even have bands like Macabre who basically write uh, different, like almost uh, folk, like they have a whole folk album, uh, fairy tales about serial killers and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah. Or there's that one metal band with the cover of Pogo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Acid Bath. Yeah. Right. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> um, so, so you have this collection. You did the um, Museum of Madness. You showcased it at um, at that horror convention, um, and now you have this new documentary. And I was wondering, um, how did you get in connection with Renee Weisner, and how did the concept for the documentary come up? Um, yeah, that's pretty interesting. He was also at, at this horror convention in 2015. And th that was the place where we met the first time. And we were in contact about all these years. And we are, we are like always making like jokes like, hey, we, we should do a documentary about all this collecting stuff. And it was always like, yeah, just an idea. 
till like 2020 when this idea became reality and so we met a, a whole weekend and shot the movie and this is how i met renee and how we yeah stayed in contact um you talked you talked about him being at the at the horror convention too and that people kind of uh had issue issue with that and i was wondering what is kind of your response to people who think that your hobby and what you're collecting is in bad taste or is or is disrespectful um what is your what is your response to those kind of people i i would tell them like i i don't harm any anyone and i i, I always have one example so look Murder Manson was never at the Rolling Stone cover, never. And he sold 50 million CDs. So if you like Manson or not, that's not relevant here. But the Boston bomber who killed three people was at the Rolling Stone front cover. So, and this tells everything. It's like the, the car accident that everybody knows he shouldn't look at the different, at, at the streets to see these this car accident, but everybody is watching. And who has a bigger influence on the world? Is it me or the Rolling Stone, the, the magazine? You know what I mean, what, what, what I was saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so they, they come to me and I am easy to like, I'm an easy target because I don't have a big company behind me. But nobody like gets to the Rolling Stone or, or something like that or all these metal bands and all that stuff like don't understand me wrong I don't like judge them because I make the same but there are so many bigger influences who gave that people a name and the, the reason why there is this museum why we do the why, why we are doing this podcast right here is because the media made these people fame and all just because of the media, I have this, this museum and I am the lowest point of that stuff. So I, I don't see me as like someone who made something that is wrong because I know it's just like it, it's a crazy hobby. It's a crazy interest, but, but it, it's, it's part of that world. And I don't think that I have like a big bad negative influence and all, and all this stuff when Rolling Stone is covering like Charles Manson or the Boston Bomber at their front page. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that, uh, I think that people like you and I are kind of like low hanging fruit and people want to get mad about, about this kind of stuff. But at the same time, um, when a new documentary on Netflix comes out about, Ted Bundy or the the Unabomber, uh, everyone can't wait to binge watch that, you know? And then you've got, I mean, how many Amityville horror movies have they made? They've made, I, I don't even know how many they've made. And that's another example of kind of our discussion on how things can become mythologized and it loses its actual historical significance. I think a lot of people don't even really know the history behind Amityville, you know, and that it's really the story of someone who murdered his whole family, you know, and that is a tragedy, but it's been removed so much that it's just become a horror story. It's just become another scary bedtime story. Um, how has your, uh, what's your own community like? Like are you, are, are the people that you're friends with also into this same interest? Um, how does your family feel about it? 
no, I think I am really like alone with that stuff. So my friends know about it. So they know my stuff and they are like, uh, okay. So, uh, he spent another like $2,000 on a Gacy painting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, I am really like, yeah, I, uh, they are cool with it, but they are not like true crime junkies. So I'm really like alone with it, but it's okay. And I really like that. And I have all my, the, 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 the people I talk about that stuff are like on the internet, like, like you right now mm. um, or other collectors, but in my, in my private, like a rounding of peoples, uh, it, it doesn't have a big, um, like, uh, yeah, a big role. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, no, I mean, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. Most of the people that I have a lot of friends that are into uh, true crime, um, collecting oddities, extreme underground movies, um, but they're from all over the world. I don't really have a lot of people that are geographically like close to me that I could actually go see. Right. You know. Right. Right. And I am very private to myself. So it's interesting now where the documentary comes and I post about it on Facebook on my private profile. There are, I had many people in the last weeks who came to me or wrote me and were like, hey, what, what's that documentary? What is the stuff you're collecting? So they doesn't really know what I was doing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, one question I forgot to ask when we were kind of like really getting into into your collect your murderabilia stuff specifically is um, how do you uh, determine that what you're buying is authentic and you know that it's real and it's not it's not a counterfeit or it's not something that someone just fabricated? Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty hard question or the answer is pretty hard. Um, there's always this question, uh, which is like, uh, yeah, there, some people in the hobby are asking, oh, is there a COA, like a, a certificate of authenticity? Mm -hmm. And these, these COAs, they don't have really much meaning. So because everybody can write something like that and can tell you, yeah, that's real because my name is on the COA. So I think... It's this. It's a hard question, but I can tell you, you have a feeling if you have like the real people around you or the or good collectors. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I can't really explain it, but for sure there are some things you should know because. So, for an example, everybody would think that when you take a John Wayne Gacy painting, the most people look at the front cover of the painting, but the back is much more um, important. So at the, at the front uh, back cover of the painting, you have more things or you can, you could more see if it's like a fake or not. Mm -hmm. And there's some things you should know. Um, but I can, I, there's really no point I could tell you that there's one point I can tell you, okay, this is real. Um, but sure, there are things like... Uh, so, when you take Eileen Warners, everybody knows Dot Bodkins is sailing her stuff. Mm -hmm. um, her best girlfriend or her best friend uh, about over the 12 years on death row. 
and it, that's that is the safest thing you can get i think when you write her so don bodkins and she is sending you a letter from eileen warners and your handwriting i don't know if you know the handwriting of eileen warners but it's pretty damn good so it's really hard to fake the writing of eileen warners that's the first point and if you got a letter sent sent from don bodkins i think this is the safest thing you 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 see you can get you know what i mean yeah could you elaborate on that a little bit with eileen warners and uh her her friend um because i think a lot of people listening may, might not be familiar with that and i think that's a good example of showing whether something's authentic or not sure so Don Bodkins was the best girlfriend or friend of Eileen Warners in the school time. And when when the case of Eileen Warners comes up, Don Bodkins saw her on TV and wrote her. And she was remembering and so they come together again. And Don Bodkins wrote Eileen Warners over to the 12 years on death row and even visited her at the last night before her execution. And so she collected everything from Eileen because Eileen was sending her all the stuff from her cell, uh, like pajamas, her death row Bibles, her radios, like everything Eileen Warners owned. And I, I was in touch with Don Bodkins and she was like, she told me that Eileen Warners gave her all these boxes with all her personal belongings. And she was like, here, like sales of stuff in in 10 years and it will be like a, f a fortune you will get like money for it and t 10 years later after the execution or 12 years later she was executed in 2002 and i, I think it was like 2013 2014 i don't know but stuff comes up from eileen Werner's because don borkins was beginning selling all her stuff mm -hmm. and yeah, I think that I hope I, I really much explained now for the people who don't know who Don Bodkins is. But this is the safest thing you can get, like a family member or a good friend who was in touch with this person, with a serial killer or with this with this person, whoever who is is and and like sailing his stuff. Like right now, it's Dennis Nielsen. All the stuff, all the belongings from Dennis Nielsen are on sale now. I don't know if you if you saw that. No, I didn't. Uh, for people listening who may not be familiar with him, could you tell us about, about him and, and what's going on with him sure. right now? Sure. Dennis Nielsen is a serial killer from England, and he died in 2018. And um, um, like a family member, like how I understand it, a family member now sells all his stuff who was found at his cell, like his keyboard, his, his, his letters, and his shoes, like everything, like personal belongings can be. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that recently with um, the Armin Mivis case, uh, the oh. German cannibal. And right. uh, I think from what I've heard is uh, basically where he lived was like abandoned and all his stuff's in there. And so people are going in there and collect grabbing his stuff from his because he lived in like a mansion or something. And they're just grabbing yeah. everything in there and selling them. And uh, it's pretty cheap right now. But I, well, relatively speaking, within like murderabilia kind of stuff, it's fairly cheap. Still hundreds of dollars, but it's not thousands of dollars. And uh, right. and so that's another example of, I think, something that 
everyone's kind of scrambling to to get right now. Um, and as time passes, uh, it's going to get more expensive. Like you talk about uh, the the Gacy paintings uh, that that Gacy was selling his paintings out of prison for like forty dollars, and now they're yeah. now they're going for like three thousand dollars. <laughs> so, uh, I think. That's a that's an interesting that's also an interesting kind of uh, take on on this hobby and collecting this stuff is that something may not have a lot of significance or attention at that moment you know especially when people are writing to Gacy when he's alive and and everyone's like oh you could get a Gacy painting easy but once that person's gone all of a sudden it becomes more rare and becomes more significant. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, your base. You're in Germany, right? That's where you are. Right, right. Have you have you made any efforts to talk to Armin Mivis at all? I wrote him once, but I was it was like okay, I know he would never respond to me because I know he's very private, and he doesn't respond to me, and then I never wrote again. <laughs> yeah. Um, are there are there any local or cases within your country that stand out to you that are interesting, or is most of your interest towards uh, American? True crime. Yeah, the, the most uh, interesting cases are in America. Like, uh, yeah, like sure, Germany has some interesting cases, but not much. It's like Armin Mivis, and I, I real I, I was really into the school shootings of Germany. Um, we had two really huge uh, school shootings. It was like in, in, in 2002, it was Erfurt with 17 dead. And a nice fact, not everybody knows, but Erfurt was happening three years after Columbine and it was bigger than Columbine. And people, students and teachers from Littleton visited the Gutenberg Museum in Erfurt to, to grieve with the teachers and the, uh, yeah, and, 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 and the students. And the second huge shooting was in 2009, March 11th. It was in Winnenden with 16 dead. So, uh, and the shooter was Tim Kretschmer. And he, that was a re that's a really interesting case. I can really, I can tell you, you should like look at it. He, he, he got into his school and shot 12 people dead in like three minutes. And then he, the police came into the school and he got away with it and shot someone outside the school and then he kidnapped an, a car and drove like through, through the whole interstate, the whole highway kidnapped with this person in the car. And the car, the, the, the person who drove the car was like driving in uh, like away from the highway so the car had an accident and, and Tim was like, he survived and the person too. And he like was uh, fleeing in a mobile car center and shot two pe more people and was killed after a shootout with, with the police. He shot himself after the police was shooting him in the leg. And this person, he was like 17. And I can really tell you, just Google the case. That was the like, this person was like, he had everything. His, his, his family was like rich. 
he had already a car in his garage and he was like the normalest person ever you know what i mean yeah and from the one day to another he took the gun from his dad because he doesn't lock locked it away which means a lot of trouble for him for the next years and yeah he was like from one day to another without every any violence history he he managed but what managed is the wrong word but he shot 12 people in three minutes and escaped the police and shot three people at his escape and there's it's something for me wow so what must have been in his head the last weeks the last years to to break out of your life like that you know what i mean yeah and i think i think the interesting thing is is that i mean it's interesting on what cases get huge a huge amount of attention and which ones don't you know, Columbine got a huge amount of attention, but you just described two cases that I'm not familiar with, but they, they seem pretty uh, significant as well. And you think about people like uh, Sam Little, who I, at least from my last research is the most most prolific serial killer in the United States. He's killed the most most people in the United States, and most people don't even know about Sam Little. You know, you, everyone knows about uh, Columbine. Everybody knows about the big names like Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, all that kind of stuff. But there's all kinds of cases that kind of, for some reason, fall under the radar that people don't pay attention to. And I think one thing is, for some reason, I, I don't know, every country is different. So sometimes the things that happen overseas, we don't hear about in the U.S. And um, it's just it's just interesting. It's fascinating to me that what gets attention and what doesn't get attention you know yes so right and if, if you if you would like to hear my opinion on it um i have like two points the first thing is in america they treat the object totally different like us so every time when i'm in the u.s in every bookstore it's a bookshelf with true crime stuff mm -hmm. so we don't have that stuff so America like make a whole culture out of these serial killers and I think these this is one part why so many names are so huge and the, 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 the second point so we stay in America now why some cases are so huge and why there are cases with more deaths are not this huge I can I, I don't know but I think I can tell you the answer the answer is it's the media. The media needs something to make them big, to like sell them. So I give you some example. Richard, Rosmir, Richard Ramirez was some like easy for the media because like he was the night stalker. He was a Satanist. This is something which looks good on the front cover. Mm -hmm. But if you have Sam Little, there is nothing the media can really gave him some horrible name. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah. So, take look. Why is Ed Gein the 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 biggest name? Even he is not even a serial killer. He just killed two people, so he don't have the term serial killer. But he is the biggest name, like Charles Manson, who or like who also never killed a person anyway. But Ed Gein was like was like the horror in person. You know, he made furniture of 
human skin and bones and all that stuff. And this is stuff you can sell. This is stuff you can really print on the newspaper and everybody would, would, would love to see the horrible details. But the same, like Sam Little, is Gary Ridgway. Most people don't know Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, because he wasn't like the Nike stalker. He wasn't the plain field ghoul. He, he hasn't had this trench coat and wore black with like the Columbine shooters. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The media always needs, like you say, at Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper is a phantom with his black coat and his dark hat. And like you say, it doesn't have really much to do with the reality anymore. Yeah. And that is the, 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 um, that is the reason why people, why cases got so much media attention because they are easier to sell to the people. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that, as much as people can talk about different, uh, different aspects of an, of the interest within true crime being that it, that it glorifies it. I think that the most the most, uh, amount of blame that you can put at anybody is the media. The media is the one that glorifies it because the media is the one that, uh, gives them the, gives them those names, you know, the night stalker, um, and turns right. them into, they sensationalize it, you know, and it's, and it's through it being sensationalized. Um, I mean, I, I, I'll admit that I don't know a great deal of, I'm just learning about Sam Little really, but, uh, I don't, in my experience, he wasn't sensationalized, you know, whereas Richard right. Ramirez was sensationalized. So one of my last questions is, uh, for people interested in this topic and who are interested in kind of starting a similar collection or writing to inmates, um, or, or collecting human human bones what are some uh what's some advice that you could give for someone who's just starting out and listening to this and and is interested um i would say like be careful because i think there are many many yeah wrong people in this hobby so i don't want to blame this hobby but it's not like that, but you need to be careful. So check check on what you are buying. Check the person. Um, so like, where where do you want to buy the stuff? And yeah, it's if you have a bad feeling, then don't do it. <laughs> and like, yeah, just if you want to write like to serial killers, just do it. I know. I mean, in time of the internet, you can like find the addresses like anywhere so um i don't know yes i i think if the interest is there and people want to start that stuff like me like 10 years ago i think they will do their way and um just yeah be careful um yeah uh, especially in pieces who who uh, are very expensive, like a Gacy painting. Like if you have a Gacy painting and you are like, you are not sure, do a screenshot and ask collector, ask big collector and uh, show them the pictures and be, be careful and ha have fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, awesome. Thanks, man. Uh, for everyone listening, uh, this is a conversation with Michael, uh, who is the subject of a documentary by Renee Weisner, which I put out through Vile Video Productions, Michael, A Murderabilia Memoriam. Um, that is out now. You can buy it through Putrid Productions. And thanks, man. I enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning about more of my work, please visit my YouTube channel, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review obscure and extreme underground cinema. Also, don't forget to check out Putrid Productions, where you can purchase shirts of my various projects, buy DVDs of the different films that I've distributed, as well as check out my most recent film, Barf Bunny. Until next time. This is the Uneasy Train Explorers Club.